Just so you guys know, my name is Travis, like John said, and uh, as we start, I have a question for you. Actually, I'm really excited that you guys all grabbed programs, those double as fans, so if you need a program, go grab a program, it'd be great. But my question for you is, have you ever made a mistake? Have you ever made a mistake? And I get that's kind of rhetorical. I'm sure you have. Um, a couple months ago, one of my sons, I'm not going to tell you who, but he wore his shorts. He put his shorts on backwards and went about his day. And it wasn't until later in the day I was like, Reese, you... Sorry. Uh, if you see him, don't tell him that I told you. But I was like, you, you have your shorts on backwards, buddy. Oh, my bad. And he goes and changes. So he made a mistake, right? Maybe you've done that as well. Some of you chuckle because you're like, I'm an adult, and I did that yesterday. Anybody would be so bold as to tell us? Nobody's bold enough. Okay. Um, I remember being in high school, and my stepdad had a Chevy Lumina. Anybody have one of those cars? It was a bit of a boat, okay? And so I'm 16 years old driving this. I left school, and I was turning left and pulled out in front of a car, and boom, car accident. There was a mistake that I made. Some of you, you know of the story this past winter. Um, I was washing the dishes. That, that was not the mistake. That's a good thing, okay? I was washing the dishes. And I was washing the crock pot, and it slipped out of my hands, and it busted in the sink, and it cut my arm open, right? So I had internal stitches, external stitches. That was a mistake. And it hurt me. My wife somehow was okay with it because she got a new crock pot. Go figure, okay? But um, I still do the dishes. I have not touched the crock pot since. And here's the thing. If we went around, you guys could probably look to one another and share mistakes that I have made. The problem is I'm not brave enough to ask you to do that, and we don't have enough time in the service for that moment to come to an end because you know how many mistakes I've made as we do life together. So the kicker is we've all, we've all made mistakes, and, and some of them, like the shorts or, or different things, they're funny and they're lighthearted. Others of them, they, they hurt us, or sometimes they're not funny at all, and they hurt everyone around us, right? That's, that's the truth of our mistakes. But also what is true is that these mistakes don't define us. And they're not, they're not final, especially when it comes to the Lord. God can and he often does use our mistakes to accomplish his purposes. Romans chapter 8 says this. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And there are times or moments that we find ourselves in where we absolutely question this verse. How could God do this? Why would God do this? I struggle to believe that God might do this. And if we look at the last two weeks of what we've been studying as John walked us through Joshua chapter 9 and this deception of the Gibeonites, we see how Israel messed up. Right? Israel did something that they never should have done. They were not meant to be in covenant with Gibeon. And if they had consulted the Lord, they never would have been deceived into making this covenant and being at peace with Gibeon. Well, naturally, chapter 9 is going to bleed into chapter 10. And we see a direct result of what has happened. Right? And we also see the Lord work it out for their good. So everything that John has talked about these last couple weeks comes into play right here as the Lord uses this mistake for Israel's good and ultimately for his glory. Briefly, let me, let me remind you what it's looked like as they've stepped into the promised land. Okay, Israel, uh, they went to Jericho and they defeated Jericho by marching around it. 
Then they went to Ai, and they defeated Ai, albeit after a defeat of their own, but they defeated Ai. Next would have been Gibeon, but Gibeon made this covenant, and they, they sought peace with Israel. But that was kind of the plan, right? One by one, city by city, as you keep walking through the promised land, defeating that people group that you are coming to. Well, in our, in our passage today, we're going to see five cities, five nations, five city-states, if you will, come together. And as they do, the Lord is going to accomplish his plans for Israel by taking care of all of them at once. And you can't help but see the mistake that Israel has made. You can't help but see the Lord use it for their good and for his glory. And so this battle that takes place in Joshua chapter 10, really, it, it leads to the completion of the conquest of southern Canaan, right? And so let's go ahead and begin this morning, Joshua chapter 10. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. I, I thought this was actually pretty cool. All of the men of Gibeon were warriors. But yet the warriors sought to make peace with Israel. Because they knew they were at war, they were at odd with the Lord. Right? And warriors sounds a lot different than cutters of wood and drawers of water. Right? That's, that's who they are to Israel. Verse 3. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Now, as we get into our passage, we see these five kings joined together to make war against Gibeon. And we, we naturally see this taking place because Gibeon is a great city. If Israel has Gibeon, then they're that much closer to us. And so we need to go back and take Gibeon back, right? That you, you can see this playing out. But what if there's more to it than just that, right? These, these other city-states could have come and reinforced Gibeon long before this. Now, I think there's something bigger going on because these, these five kings, they do not attack Israel, but rather Gibeon. And they don't do this until Gibeon has made a covenant with Israel. Why didn't you come and either reinforce them or come and attack them earlier? You didn't do this until Gibeon made a covenant, made peace with Israel. That's when you then attacked Gibeon, right? And so these these Gibeonites go from being allies with these other nations to being at war with these nations. And it didn't happen until they made a covenant with Israel. And my question is, is our world any different? Our world is, is fine with you, regardless of what you want to do until you choose to follow the Lord. That's when the world will go to war with you. you you've seen this played out in your life if you're a follower of Christ today. We see this played out in our passage we, we shouldn't be surprised that this is taking place. And in fact, the Lord isn't surprised either. He, he and the entire nation of Israel step in to fight the battle. Let's look at verse 6. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, 
saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Really quick, as I read this, two things jump out to me, and hopefully they do you as well. Because of the covenant that had been made with with Joshua and Israel, the Gibeonites knew that Joshua was going to protect them. So when they, they found themselves in trouble, they believed these words, and they called out to him for help. Do you and I understand the same principle today in our relationship with Jesus? There's a covenant that has been made between us and Christ. Do we believe the promises of God? Do we run to him in times of need? The Gibeonites, they're at war and they give this entire issue over to Joshua. What if we did the same thing? What if we truly casted our cares upon him because he cares for us? I can't do this. Here, Jesus, right? It's a great example from the Gibeonites that we as followers of Christ can step into. So I love seeing that. Secondly, I love seeing that Joshua and Israel go immediately to aid the Gibeonites, right? Truly honoring their word, honoring the covenant that they had made. And we might just glance past this and and forget about it, but I want to pause just for a second, right? Thinking about how challenging this could have been. Just a short time ago, they were deceived. Think about how hard this might have been. If someone deceives you, someone takes advantage of you, someone hurts you, and then they cry out for help, how quickly or how likely are you going to go to help them? If you're anything like me, and hopefully this isn't a discouragement of how I am, but I would struggle with that, right? Maybe you would too. Maybe, maybe you would look at them and, you know what, I actually struggle to go help you. Or I'm going to let that just linger for a little bit. Or maybe you you let them struggle for a little bit before you jump in. And that's not what we see with Joshua. That's not what we see with Israel. They honor their word, they honor the covenant, and they jump right in, regardless of what has taken place. They've forgiven Gibeon, and they are coming to their aid. And so as we come back to our passage, just thinking about that, thinking about how much I want to step into that same idea as Joshua did. But as we look to verse 8, we see familiar words, familiar words of encouragement from the Lord to Joshua that should take us all the way back to the beginning of this book, to Joshua chapter 1, right? We see these words, and although there is fighting that needs to take place, we see that the Lord has already decided the outcome. Verse 8 says this, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Right, so these five kings that have teamed up, the Lord says, don't even fear them. I've already given them into your hands. This is a promise from the Lord for Joshua. This is a promise from the Lord for Israel. And on your fans, sorry, programs that you got today, there are a couple fill in the blanks. There's only two, right? Don't want to overwork. There's already a lot of heat in here, so more energy creates more heat. So just two fill in the blanks is all we got. Our first one is this. We need to remember the promises of God. Remember the promises of God. This promise for them was huge, and it encouraged them to move forward. It encouraged them to take a step in their faith. When was the last time that you paused to remember a few of the promises of God? 
Right, here, here are just a few for us as believers today. Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Right? We are promised that the Lord is with us and the Lord is already ahead of us in the next place you're going to go that has air conditioning. The Lord's already there. But seriously, the Lord is with you right now and he's already ahead of you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. He's never going to leave you. That's a promise from the Lord. 1 John chapter 1 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess your sins to the Lord, he promises to forgive you. Isaiah 41 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Promises to strengthen us, promises to help us, promises to uphold us. Jesus says this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How encouraging is that promise? Not just because you're tired this morning, but because you're tired from life. There's a promise from the Lord to give us rest if we will just come to him. James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Promises to give us wisdom if we ask. Philippians 4 verse 19 says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Promises to meet every one of our needs. And you might say, this is, this is taken forever. We could do this literally all day. There are thousands of promises in Scripture. Thousands of promises in Scripture. Do you know? Do you care? Do you study them? Do you memorize? Do, do you remember them in the moment that you need them? Thousands of promises in Scripture, and he is faithful to keep every single one of them. Listen to these last two verses. These are Solomon's words in verse Kings chapter 8, verse 56 says this. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And secondly, the, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Right? Let this moment encourage you this morning. Just like that moment encouraged Joshua and encouraged Israel on that day. Remember the promises of God. Maybe spend some time this week looking up other promises. Maybe spend some time this week memorizing one of these, these passages we just went through. Honestly, those are ones that, that the Lord has put on my heart multiple times in, in the past decade. I can't think of a, a hospital visit that I have done in the past decade that I've not used Deuteronomy 31.8. Letting someone know that the Lord is with you and the Lord is already ahead of you into whatever, whatever is next. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Right? That's something that has been committed to memory, committed to my heart that I've shared with so many people. Maybe this week that's part of your homework is to say, you know what? I want to learn more about the promises of God. What does this look like? I need to know them so I can remember them. Well, this, this promise is such a big deal, and it causes Israel and Joshua to step forward, to move forward. 
Yes, there is a promise, but yes, there is still work to do. Verse 9 says this. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And this is significant, and we'll, we'll touch base on it in a minute. But verse 10, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah. And they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So Israel hikes that night, likely about 15 miles, and they begin this surprise attack. And during this moment, we see the Lord provide two miracles. I don't know if you saw them, if they jumped out to you. One, the Lord threw down large hailstones. There were more of the Amorites that died from the hailstones than Israel even killed. And the second miracle is that as these hailstones came down, they didn't harm Israel in any way. We are in this hand-to-hand combat. Hail comes down from heaven and kills this man and not this man. Kills these men and not those men, right? There's another miracle right there. It's amazing. And you see the Lord fighting this battle. Clearly, if more people have died from the hail, then people have died from the hand-to-hand combat. As amazing as this is, amazing as these miracles are, they pale in comparison to what happens next in our passage. What happens next is the last recorded miracle in the book of Joshua and potentially the greatest miracle that we're going to read about. Verse 12 says this, At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. There, there is so much happening in this passage. Right? Joshua prays one of the craziest prayers in all of Scripture. And the Lord answers it. Right? Lord, we need more time to defeat the enemy. We, we want to defeat the enemy before they can escape. Lord, please, please make the sun stand still so that this can be accomplished. And I wonder, why is this the prayer? Why do we need such a crazy miracle in this moment? Why do we have to defeat the enemies with such haste? Well, for starters, the Amorites worshipped the sun and the moon. And so really, this is the very miracle that would show that the Lord is the one true God. Right? The fact that the moon aided the Israelites in the hike the night before would also speak to the false gods of the Amorites. And the sin of the Amorites was so bad that Israel had to take care of them at once, right? Because if they don't, then Israel is at risk of being influenced by any who were left. And I don't know as I read that what blows my mind more, the fact that Joshua had the audacity or the willingness to pray this prayer, the fact that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, or that the sun actually stood still. I don't know what blows my mind more. I told a friend a few weeks ago that I was 
preaching on Joshua chapter 10, and he got really excited. And I was like, that's awesome. You're excited. He goes, yeah, I'm really excited because that's the one that all the skeptics talk about. He goes, I can't wait to hear what you say. And he was here in first service, and so I, got to talk, I have to talk to him and say, eh, what do you think? But he's right. This is one that anybody who doesn't believe in miracles will go straight to this passage, straight to this chapter, and say, there's no way. Prove that. Show me that. Right? And even as believers, we struggle to explain this as well. And, and so here are a few explanations that I came across studying for this. There are a lot of them. We're going to walk through them. The first explanation was that this passage is merely poetic, right? It's not meant to be understood literally. Kind of this idea that it's alluding to there was so much done that day that it was kind of like two days' worth of events, two days' worth of fighting, right? And although this piece is poetic, it's still within narrative, and it does seem as though something really did happen, so that can be a, a challenge. Another explanation was that this event only refers to an eclipse. Now, I'm not an expert when it comes to eclipses. I don't even know if you would pronounce that eclipse I, maybe. I'm going to go with eclipses. Okay, I'm not an expert, but I did live through one in 2017. Any of you that were here in Idaho, you lived through it as well. Okay, people came from all over to the Treasure Valley to experience this eclipse. There were no hotel rooms in the whole valley. And you might think that that's just a random claim. Our family at the time was living in a hotel because our house had caught on fire and our insurance company could not get us a hotel room for two nights. And we said, what do you mean? There are no hotel rooms in the entire Treasure Valley. The whole world has come to Idaho to witness the eclipse, right? I lived through an eclipse. You lived through an eclipse. You saw your shadow on the ground that looked weird. You, you heard the animals ready for bed. You heard the insects come out for like two minutes, a minute and a half. And I think for me, again, not being an expert, I don't think an eclipse is long enough for this. And I also think you see the, the sun and the moon in two different areas of the sky, not in conjunction with one another. So maybe that's not the explanation. Another explanation was that the earth actually stopped its rotation around the sun. And an argument would be that this would cause catastrophic events all over the world. And then you would follow it up and you'd say, well, my God is big enough to handle those as well. That's an explanation. Another idea that that makes a lot of sense to me is that the earth's rotation was slowed down but not stopped, right? That, that seems to make sense. And some people think that as the earth slows down, you would be flung from the earth uh, and thrown into space, but that's not the case. I read some articles about that as well. Um, but this could have been taken care of, like all of these other catastrophes could have been taken care of as the Lord slowed the earth down gradually and then after this moment sped it back up, right? And so that could be an explanation. Another one was that the earth wobbled on its axis, maybe being too close to Mars or maybe being struck with asteroids. Maybe the light came from the Lord himself, that he was the source of the sunlight, right, his Shekinah glory. Or maybe the sun's heat was not felt, and this allowed Israel to continue with the battle, just to stand still, sun stand still behind the clouds. There's cloud cover. That was an explanation. Or it was just a mirage that the sun and moon looked out of place, it was a refraction of light. That's another thought for the light to linger longer. Because after all, it was light that Joshua needed, not the earth to stop spinning. Or maybe it was that the sun stopped shining. That as the hailstones came, it brought darkness. And this allowed Israel to continue the battle because it wasn't in the heat of the day. Or, or the sun stopped shining 
meaning not with daylight, but the sun stopped shining so that it continued with night, right? That Israel had made this hike at night and the sun stopped shining so that they continue in the darkness fighting this battle, right? There's a lot of explanations. There's even, last one, an idea that Joshua is merely speaking to the Canaanite superstitions of a bad omen as the sun and mood were in opposite areas of the sky. I read a whole article about this, that if it was a day before, it was a day after, it would have been better, but because both the sun and the moon were in the sky at once, it was a bad omen for the Amorites, and that's why Joshua is saying this. What I do know is not much, but I do know that I read way too many articles on this. I even got sucked in the rabbit hole of trying to see if there was any legitimacy to NASA finding a lost day in their calculations. And some of you are laughing and chuckling because you too have gone down that rabbit hole, right? Yeah, I see your smiles. Okay, here's the way it went. Supposedly NASA had found a day that they couldn't explain. Where was this day? And so you go to Joshua and it was 23 hours and 20 minutes. And so we were close, but not close enough. But if you go to 2 Kings in the story of Hezekiah where the, sun bring, the Lord brings the sun back and the shadow moves back 10 spaces, 10 steps, well, there's the other 40 minutes. There's the lost day. And there's been no truth to this claim that NASA found this day. I've been down the rabbit hole of how to explain this miracle, right? That's what I'm trying to tell you. I also came across a few articles that shared how different people groups around the world spoke to an event happening, right? Showing that this was not a local miracle, but something that took place worldwide. And I found this to be interesting. Let me show you this, this first picture. This is a picture of different locations, different cultures speaking to a long day, right? There was something in their history that there was this long day. And you can see this take place in Egypt. You can see this take place in India. You can see this take place in China. And I thought, that's, that's pretty compelling. But I wonder if there's a long day on one side of the earth. There has to be a long night on the other side of the earth, right? Is there, are there any cultures or any civilizations that would speak to having a long night? I'm glad you asked. Here's this picture. These are different people groups that have legends and stories of a long night. Native Americans that say there was a long night, that say the sun got trapped um, by a rabbit. There are groups in Canada, there are groups in the United States, there are Aztecs, there are Mayans in Guatemala. And in my mind, I'm like, this is pretty significant. Right? And you might say, it's not a big deal. A lot of people groups have these outlandish stories. But you might say, well, this group would have a long day, and this group would have a long night, and that group would have a long night. No, they're on two different sides of the planet. And then there was this other story in Fiji that said the locals would tie weeds together to stop the sun from going down as it once did. And so if you took Fiji and you made that the furthest west point of darkness, and you took this graph, it would put all of the folk stories of a long night in the same area and all the folk stories of a long day in the same area. And I thought this was pretty compelling. But it still doesn't explain the how, right? You just get excited about it, but it doesn't explain the how. But it might give some credit to the sun maybe actually standing still for that day. Ultimately, after all the reading, all the research, I landed on this conclusion. Are you ready? It was a miracle. It absolutely was a miracle. And I would imagine that, that maybe the Lord delayed the setting of the sun by slowing the rotation of the earth. But ultimately, I think that we should take this, this whole passage at face value. 
God alone caused this to happen. And it happened however he wanted it to, which might be outside of our understanding, and that is okay. And even if this event has potential to cause other issues with, with physics, well, my God is big enough to handle that also. Jeremiah says this in chapter 32. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And the book of Psalms tells us that day and night belong to the Lord. One commentator said this. He said, if God can't perform the miracle described in Joshua 10, then he can't perform any miracle and is imprisoned by his own creation, unable to use or suspend the very laws he built into it. He finished by saying, I have a difficult time believing in that kind of God. And I would agree. Why, why do we want so desperately to explain scientifically every single one of the miracles that we find in the Bible. Sometimes I think it takes more faith to do that than it does to believe in God and to believe in the miracle. Either we have a, a, a belief in a God who can do anything or we don't. Now, I'm not saying there isn't room for doubt, right? Doubt can be a great thing because doubt can cause you to find answers and answers can help you to grow and be strengthened in your faith. I'm just reminding us to be careful as we try to explain away the miraculous. If we begin to do that, then there are many things that end up going out the window as well. Just to name a few, if you think about our study through the book of Joshua, we would have to get rid of Israel crossing the Jordan River on dry ground because that's a miracle. We would have to get rid of the walls of Jericho falling down as they marched around and shouted praise because that's a miracle. If we look back to Egypt, you'd have to get rid of the plagues. You would have to get rid of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. If we look to the New Testament, you're going to have to get rid of the virgin birth. You're going to have to get rid of the resurrection. You're going to have to get rid of the inspiration of the Bible. Right? There's so much at stake here. I found a C.S. Lewis quote that said this. It said, the mind which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind in process of relapsing from Christianity into mere religion, right? We've already seen the miracle of the hailstones and the miracle that these hailstones did not affect Israel in any way and we didn't bat an eye. The miracle of the sun standing still is one that we should believe in as well, right? God is more than capable. Regardless of, of how, the truth is that the day was prolonged. The Lord fought the battle for Israel. But all of that, all of those words, what I really want to talk about is not the miracle. I want to talk about the prayer that led to the miracle. This outlandish, crazy prayer. Right? During this, this battle, Joshua prays for something that has never happened. In verse 14, it said this, There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. I don't know about you, but for me, going through this study, Joshua has been such an encouragement, right? Thinking about who he is and how he desires to honor the Lord. And I get it, there's been a few bumps along the way, a uh, bump with, with I and how he handled that, a bump with Gibeon and, and what that looked like. But for the most part, he's been an incredible example of what it looks like to follow the Lord. To remain steadfast in your faith, and believe the promises of the Lord all the way back in the book of Numbers, right? To be encouraged by the Lord 
and to find your strength and your courage at the beginning of Joshua chapter 1. Right? The, the way that he continues to seek the Lord, continues to grow in the Lord, really relying upon him. I think this prayer is just the culmination of all of that, of who Joshua is, how he has grown to place his faith and place his trust in the Lord. And I want that to be said about me. I want that to be said about us as individuals. I want that to be said about us as a church, as Redeemer Church. That they trust the Lord, they believe the Lord, they rely upon the Lord. And so the question is, how are we doing with this? Right, Joshua's prayer causes me to ask the question, how am I doing at this? And to be honest, I'm not doing as well as I would hope to be. Why do I not pray like this? Why do you not pray like this? Do, do we actually believe that God would answer our prayers? Does God really care about our prayers? Do I not need God and this is why I don't pray like this? These are questions, but these are serious questions. Some of us, we have it all together, and maybe that's why we don't pray. Others of us, maybe we are so busy, and that's why we don't pray. Or maybe there's even a few of us in here that, that say, you know what? I don't actually believe God is capable of doing anything, and that's why we don't pray. In our passage, Joshua prays for the son to literally stand still. And God answers. Joshua prays to the Lord and the Lord hears him. One lone man prays to the Lord. One lone man who had messed up and made a mistake not so long ago. One prayer and the Lord answers him. And so please, tell me why the Lord would not hear your prayer. If you were to be bold enough to pray to the Lord, why would he not hear your prayer? If you're a follower of Christ today, then the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So you, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, you cry out to the Lord and he doesn't hear it? No way. He would absolutely hear your prayer. Whatever it is, he would hear your prayer. Or, or maybe you're not a follower of Christ today and you find yourself in, in the shoes of the Gibeonites Right? Knowing that your only chance at survival is to make peace with the Lord. Well, today that's done through accepting the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers. And so you tell me that you, you call out on the name of Jesus for salvation, believing that he is the Lord, believing that God raised him from the dead, and God does not hear that prayer. He absolutely hears that prayer. Right? We need to be people who pray. We have to be, and hopefully this passage encourages us to do just that. And, and so what is it for you? Honestly, what is the prayer that you're holding on to that you won't give to the Lord? There, there's actually a, a spot on your program to write down a prayer request. Maybe, maybe some of you didn't know this. You didn't know there's a spot to write down a prayer request and, and put it in one of the next step boxes. Maybe you don't feel comfortable to place your prayer request in the next step box. Or maybe, like I said, you don't actually believe that God is capable of doing anything with those. Every single week, there are two people, the same two people that put in a prayer request. And every week, there's three or four others. About a handful of prayer requests each week 
And you would say, well, how do you know that, Travis? I know that because our staff prays for them every single week. What if you say, you know what? It's time for me to fill out a prayer request. It's time for me to allow you, staff of Redeemer Church, to go to the Lord on my behalf and to lift this up to him because I can't do it. And I'm trusting that he can, that he's capable of it. What, what is it? I want to encourage you, write down a prayer request. And maybe this is the first week that we get to pray for you as a staff. But as you do, give it to the Lord. Believe that he is capable. Believe that he can handle it. Some of us need to do just that. We, we need to pray and believe that God can. Pray and believe that God can. And you might say, he can what? I don't know. Whatever it is. Whatever it is that he's laid on your heart, whatever he's laid on your mind, pray and believe that he can take care of it, that he is capable of it. Pray and believe that he can restore your marriage because he can. If I were to ask, and I'm not going to, but if I were to ask couples to stand who God has restored their marriage, there would be multiple couples in here. But yet you might be sitting there thinking God can't. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to. He's not capable of it there would be multiple couples that would stand today. Some of us need to pray and believe that God can cure the sickness that you're working through, that you're fighting, that he can give you the strength even in your weakness. Some of us need to pray and believe that God can bring the wayward child back to the faith. Again, there would be multiple parents in here that would say, that happened with my child. There would be multiple children in here who have been brought back to the faith. Pray and believe that God can do it. Pray and believe that God can forgive your sins, wants to forgive your sins, provided a way to forgive your sins. Pray and believe that God can handle your finances. Pray and believe that God can bring your spouse into a relationship with Jesus. Pray and believe that God can bring your friend into a relationship with Jesus. Whatever it is, whatever God is laying on your heart right now, he can do it. And let this verse remind us that he is capable. Our last fill in the blank is this. Remember that prayer recognizes our dependence upon him. And this is somewhat of a, a spin on our pillar of prayer because our pillar is somewhat of a definition. But that's what I want us to walk away with today. Remembering the promises of God and remembering that prayer recognizes our dependence upon him. Now, although we've covered a lot of different things, if we look at this passage, it really started with five kings. And so what I want to do is I want to close it down by seeing what happened to those five kings. It says this in verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard it. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. And when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into their fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. 
Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. So Joshua orders that these kings be left in the cave and that stones are used to close the mouth of the cave so that the kings cannot escape. And then he and Israel goes out to finish the battle. And Joshua reminds Israel that the Lord has already given them into your hands. And at the end, verse 21 tells us where the hearts of all the Amorites were now with regards to Israel and the Lord. It says this in verse 21, not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. In other words, no one dared to threaten Israel at this point. Right, because of this battle, the level of fear for Israel is at an all-time high. And you will see this as we continue in the book of Joshua. The, the rest of the conquest of the promised land goes pretty quick. Verse 22 says this, Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and they brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel. He said to the chief of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. This was a sign of defeat, and everyone in Israel was witness to it. This pride, this power, this arrogance of these kings is now gone. And the Lord has shown Israel that the Lord is greater than any army that they will face. And I love that Joshua brings all of Israel in, and there's a reason. This moment is meant to be a reminder for the future. These are Joshua's next words, verse 25. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. This will continually be the outcome, Israel. Don't be afraid. This is what it's going to look like. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this day. And as I read that, some of you are smiling because you are realizing that this is another set of memorial stones that they have placed over this cave, right? Remember this battle. Remember this moment. Remember how the Lord fought for you. Remember how the Lord provided for the mistake that you made with being in covenant with Gibeon. Remember the miracles that took place. And remember that your God is greater than it all. When your kids ask one day, what are these stones here for? This is what you tell them. Remember. Right? This moment closes like this in verse 28. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on the day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Well, at this point, verses 29 through 39, uh, recount how Joshua and Israel from this moment went town to town in the southern half of the promised land and overtook each of them. It, it talks of five cities and four more kings that are destroyed. And then the, the chapter closes, as well as the southern conquest, with verse 40. It says, so Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. 
And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and Israel with him to camp at Gilgal. Verse 42 says it all. Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. This is, this is significant. This is something that we need to remember. This is something that we need to apply. That the, the Lord will fight for you and I as well. He has not changed. Right? As we close, what I want to do is I want to look back to verse 25. Verse 25 was where Joshua had the men of Israel put their feet on the necks of the five kings, right? Signifying defeat and showing the power of the Lord. It said this in verse 25. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Right? Again, this, this moment was meant to be a reminder going forward. What the Lord was going to continue to do in all of their battles don't be afraid because the Lord will continue to fight for you. Think about your life for a moment. The Lord has fought for you constantly. The Lord has fought for you in ways you may never even know. The Lord has fought for you every single moment of your life. The Lord has fought for you many moments before your life even began. I know that's true in, in my life. I don't know what these moments are for you, but you do. You know the moments where you've prayed. You know the moments where the Lord has provided. You know the moments where he has answered your prayer. Right? Remember these moments. Remember his promises. Remember. And the same God who fought for Israel on that day is the same God who encouraged Joshua is the same God who protected you in the past. He's the same God that is caring for you right now in this moment and the same God that wants to provide for you in the future. He has not changed. There are things that God can't do. Have you ever thought of that? One of them is change. He can't change. He's never changed. He will never change. Hopefully this passage today is a reminder to us of the promises of God a reminder to us to recognize our dependence upon him. Because as we cling to those truths, it gives us hope for tomorrow. It gives us hope for whatever we face next. Let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity to walk through Joshua chapter 10. Thank you for showing your incredible strength, showing your care for Israel, showing your listening ear for Joshua. God, I ask that we would be encouraged by, by your miracles. God, I ask that we would be encouraged by Joshua's prayers, that we would be people who pray, that this week this would be something that we grow in, that we take steps even today, maybe to write down a prayer request, to ask someone else to pray for us, to believe you, and to pray to you. God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you are capable. I thank you that you hear us and that you never change. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.